We're looking at some of the most important language in the world for understanding who we are and what we're about. The famous Christ hymn of uh, Philippians 2, which Paul says will complete his joy if you think the way you're supposed to think. If you concern yourself for one another, if you join together in Christian unity, then you will complete Paul's joy. And right there is some conviction for us. Is that what causes us to rejoice? That we're unified in the spirit and therefore on the mission of the gospel. Are we, were, are we one in the word of God so that we're growing spiritually on God's timing so that we're useful to him corporately? That's the way Paul thinks about the Philippians. And for example, in verse three says, do nothing motivated by, let me put it up on the screen for you. Do nothing motivated by selfish ambition or vainglory, the emptiness of the pursuits of this world, which give you nothing eternally. It's a waste because it only has value in time. And you might have a really plush situation in time, but when you die and you have nothing stored up in heaven, it was all a waste. That's vainglory. But with humble mindedness, one another regarding as more important than yourselves, not, only, not each of you looking out for your own interests only, but also each the interests of the others. This is, this is my paraphrase. Of course, the, the, the English Bible translations will clean that up into an English sentence that sounds more palatable to our English-speaking English sensibilities. I almost said English sensibilities, and then I checked myself. Um, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Isn't that nice? That's much cleaner in verse four, but that's basically the sense of what Paul is saying, that you have to uh, get past you and go to God and think about what he wants. And then with the Lord in view and what he's commanded you, now you're loving one another. And so it's a worship act in how you treat one another. It's not worship of the other, worship of God and how you treat one another. It's the constant refrain throughout the scriptures is how you treat man is important to God, but it isn't an end in itself. It's what you do for God's sake. God is interested in what is going on between Cain and Abel. Am I my brother's keeper is the first murder, the first murder. Am I my, yeah, you are, and you killed him. And so God throughout scripture has uh, demonstrated this interest in how we treat one another for his sake. And when you do that, listen, Christians, we're talking about doing this, this mission work together. When you think about one another, for God's sake, all the weirdness, all the, the difficulty of, 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 of the dissonance of how we're different. And I don't Somebody once described Christian fellowship here as uh, trying to hang out with people you don't really want to hang out with. Well, interesting thought, very 1980s mall thinking, you know, the world and how the world is. And, and I, I, you know, yeah, I mean, after the flesh, fine, right? But that's not the way God is doing this. I don't think Jesus was selecting the 12 because he thought, oh, this is like an e-harmony coalescence of, of capabilities and interests, and this will be a good crew, right? I think he had a, a, a plan that was bigger than what we would call compatibility. But... No, we're not here for just the experience of enjoying each other. 
We're here for God, and that means that we concern ourselves on his account for one another. That's the, that's the, the idea. And so it, even in the Ten Commandments, while we're walking through the Bible, skip from Genesis to Exodus 20, the first four commandments, how you treat God, the last six commandments, how you treat man for God's sake. It's everywhere in the scriptures. And then when you go to, let's fast forward just a little bit to the upper room discourse, which we all know is John chapters 13 through 17. And Jesus says, if you love me, then keep my commandments. That's how you demonstrate your love for him as you obey him. And what, is there, what are his commandments? That you love one another. And so it's worship, how we treat each other. Nevertheless, Paul says this will, this will cause him to rejoice if we'll think this way. And then he says something radical. He says what we call the Christ hymn. And my verse says verse six there, but it's really verse five. Have this thinking in yourselves for have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a command to think. It's a command to hold a mindset, an attitude, a way of thinking about yourself and about life. Who, although he existed, although being in the form of God, I've got a better translation of this. No, this is good. Although being in in the form of God did not regard as something to be grasped the status of being equal to God. Although being in God's essence, he didn't consider this glory, this equal status, this equal prestige of being equal with God as something to hang on to. But rather, he emptied himself. This is the finite verb. This is what he did. He emptied himself. In what sense? He didn't stop being God. He stopped enjoying the glory of God. He stopped uh, functioning as God to enter the human race and function as a man. By taking the form of a slave, he emptied himself. How? By becoming one of us. Taking the form of a slave by becoming in the likeness of mankind. My Bible says being made in the likeness of mankind. But the word being made, there's no word for making. That's just how you would become in the likeness of someone would make you. But, um, but that's what this means. He, he became, genomai, he became in the likeness of mankind. And after he was found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so this great, notice this is, this is Paul's explanation for how you should think about each other, right? That's what he's doing. The explanatory conjunction gar begins with four. In verse five. But to me, theologically speaking, what he's saying here is far more important and and informative. (laughs) It's way more important to me than the command in verses uh, three, four, five, or three and four, that I would consider other people's more important than myself. I mean, that's about me and how I live. This is about the very essence of God and the natures of Christ and how he became one of us. It's often been pointed out. The great theology here is in motivating us to how we treat one another. And so what that does to me, I pray that it does it for you. It raises your sense of how important how you treat each other is. Your attitude about you and how you relate to others. (laughs) Paul says, think about what Jesus did for you. And this is your attitude that you adopt. This is Christian humility. And what does Christian humility look like? Well, it says, God, the father, I am here for you, not for me. 
your plan is better than any plan I could come up with, and I acknowledge that. And so have your own way. Here's my hands. Here's my life. Here's my heart. Do what you want with me. Not as I will, but your will be done. That's the very heart of Christian humility, and it results in Jesus going to the cross. And this is the way you and I will arrive, if we adopt this attitude, at a right relation to other believers. You've got to read it in context. How you relate to other believers in verses 3 and 4 is very much how you relate to God, what your dealings with God are. All right. For this reason also, in verses 9 through 11, we have the consequence of this humiliation, this humbling of the Lord Jesus. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. That's God the Father highly exalted God the Son in his flesh as in his humanity. And he granted to him a name above every name. And I know we're talking about the humanity of Christ now and not the deity of Christ. How do I know that? Because of what he says next. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Jesus is the new name that's been given to this eternal second person of God. Think about it. The second person of the Trinity was born into the human race in what we call the incarnation. And his mama obeyed and named him Jesus, or Jesus, Yeshua. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord unto the glory of the Father. So many things are going on here. The thing I like to point out is the celebrity of the Lord Jesus. Whoever you admire is now bowing the knee forever, as it were, to the real celebrity. Let's think that way. Let's embrace that and uh, order our priorities and our allegiances accordingly. We're in a politically charged time, and now I'm going to preach politics. Let me uh, give you a quick sermon on politics. Nobody knows the timing of the rapture. The Antichrist is going to be revealed after the rapture. The next prophetic event, therefore, is the rapture. And so the kingdom isn't here, and it won't be here until at least seven years after the rapture. So uh, that's my message on politics. Jesus isn't on the ballot. So much not on the ballot. Really, really not on the ballot. And so um, you need to exercise your civic duty with the right perspective about what you're doing we want to preserve freedom and advance the gospel but if these people throw off their freedom we're going to still advance the gospel in tyranny that's that's our mission we won't change the mission we'll just change some of our mo sometimes you have to preach from prison paul did it in philippi and therefore we've been evangelizing people with Acts 16 31 ever since that's the end of my sermon on on uh, on politics now what Paul is doing here exalts the Lord Jesus so far beyond any human consideration, anything going on anywhere that you might imagine in the country. And it's going on right now in your heart as you submit to God, as you walk with him, as you humble yourself before God willingly. <clears throat> and I want to th say, when Paul says, have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ, it's a huge challenge. It's a shot across the bow of my soul. Why? Why? Why does this hit me so hard? Because any time during the day in the actual progress of my life, 
this mirror might be held up and I might become aware and think it through and say, where am I with respect to this attitude? And at times we have to confess we're not there. Why not? Why don't we live in this bubble in this thought that for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, for God to have his way is the very best and highest for me, for me to, uh, to, to say, God, you have your way is the most exalted state I could enter in as I humble myself before him. As I think about this, what's the problem? Why don't we do this? And it's because of a one little five letter word. It's faith. In the moment, not, I don't, I don't mean you don't believe. I mean, in the moment at times, because of our concentration, because of our distraction, whatever, we lack faith. We don't think of God as having us in his hand and that his best is the greatest and highest. And so I humble myself before him and we get into our tendencies in the flesh to claw and grab after handfuls of significance. But to think the way Paul thinks, the way Jesus thinks, the way Paul is telling us in the power of the spirit to think requires faith. And the consistency of our faith in God will determine the consistency of our performance and mental attitude. The more you trust him, the more you're stabilized to think like he wants you to think. The whole mindset depends on believing that God has you. Our Christian humility depends on our growing faith in God. And whatever kind of adjustments, whatever kind of adjustments we would need to make to our expectations, our ambitions, our idea of the good life, we need to make them. Whatever the adjustment is that God has the best and it means the cross for Jesus and it means suffering along with Jesus for the gospel's sake, if that's the best for us. And we have to, it's hard, we rich young rulers to make that adjustment in our thinking. For go on thinking this in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although being in the form, the very essence of God, did not regard as something to be grasped the status of being equal to God, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, humbling himself all the way to the point of the death of the cross with the view to the fact that the father would exalt him for that very reason of his humiliation. He would be exalted above all. And this is the destiny of the believer in Jesus Christ who's going to disciple up. To, to become this kind of person, we would mainly have to think all the time in terms of our relationship with God. It would have to be real to us. This relationship based on God's revelation delivered, resident, and applied in us through the filling of the Holy Spirit is the whole game. It's the whole thing. And that's why we teach, 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 study, 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 read, 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 pray, pray, pray. Because in the moment, it's your faith in God who has you and you saying, God, have your way that will deliver this mental attitude and therefore your practice. There are some questions we should ask. Who is God? Who are we? What has God done for us? What does God want from us? What is God going to do with us? We just summarized the entire realm of Christian theology. Christians, you need to be able at first, perhaps in broad strokes to answer these key theological questions. Can you answer that? Who is God? An alarming number of Christians can't really articulate what the Trinity does and does not say, what we mean by Trinity, what we mean by the deity of Christ or how we must insist on it. If you adopt the apostles answer to these questions, 
which is to take on the Lord Jesus Christ's answers. You'll be way ahead of the greatest thinkers. Now watch, wait, wait, we're going to climb a hill right now. You'll be way ahead of the greatest thinkers, the greatest philosophers, the most important heads of state, the great men of the earth in their fields. You'll be ahead of them. You'll be beyond their, their possible grasp in their fields. Why? You'll know the why of the physics better than the greatest physicists. You'll know better than Feynman or Einstein and today's pikers who make headlines on TED Talks and YouTube videos. You'll have a better grasp of the true reason. Sorry, you'll have a better grasp of true reason than the greatest rationalists like Descartes and all who followed in his train. You'll have a better grasp of the benefits and limits of human observation than the greatest empiricist philosophers like Hume and Francis Bacon. Some of you are like, I don't know anything about what anything you're talking about. But even not knowing these people or their pursuits or their endeavors, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica is probably more reliable than Wikipedia, but hey, get started, right? Maybe you'll never study any of these things in their detail, but if you know the things that God has told you, you'll know in these people's fields better than they do because they said no to that revelation. And we're talking in this context about Christian humility. If you get your answers to the big questions from the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles, you'll know better than the psychologist, sociologist, anthropologist, or any other applied biologist, student of applied biology, what this life is for, what makes it matter. And in this wealth of revelation, of understanding, of glorious insight, you will in the train of the Lord Jesus Christ be a consummate servant because you'll be humble before God and therefore before men like none of these great minds, these great human minds over whom you have better understanding of the great questions about which they inquired. <laughs> Think about that. We're talking about Christian humility. And in that same breath, that means listening to God and getting to his perspective about things, life. And when you do that, because you're humble before God, you now understand better than the greatest and wisest that mankind in his unbelief has to offer. Remember, this is a message about humility, and that seems like a paradox. Beloved, today we will be called arrogant for saying we have insight beyond the great men of the world. I know we'll be called arrogant for saying that. And I won't say I understand all that these great people understood. I just think we understand where their endeavors tend, where they go. I can't do a circuit analysis anymore. I used to kind of could. But I know why it works. And the electrical, the electrical student of physics doesn't know why it works. He just knows that it works. That's what I'm talking about. But we'll be called arrogant for saying we have insight beyond the great men of the world. We'll be called arrogant for holding that God's revelation in our hearts is a true form of knowledge. See, you, you say you know something that you can't really know. Well, I didn't come up with it. It's not my speculation. We're in a time of great speculation about the disease that's floating around. The Wu flu or whatever. Everybody's speculating and, and, uh, and there's speculation about the, the millions of dollars being spent every day on speculation about the election. Right? With the polling and stuff. And, and all the punditry and all the stuff. We're not talking about I have the scald on the world because I have great insight. We're talking about God told us. That's it. God told us. And so we know because he told us. 
We'll be called arrogant for holding that God's revelation in our hearts is a true form of knowledge. Yet in reality, listen to this, the arrogance of godless man masquerades as humility. How does that work? Well, this is another paradox. On the one hand, man will say that he does not claim the exalted status of knowing the things God has told us. And on the other hand, he claims that you cannot know what God has told you. And here's the paradox. You know better and yet are humble because you take God at his word. You know better, but you're humble because you take God at his word. Godless man knows either that what God has said is not so, or that God has not said, or that he cannot know whether God has said. And that's the plight of those around you. Humble Christians who are putting yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he exalts you are surrounded by people claiming you are arrogant for knowing what God has said because he has said it. I think man in his godlessness, his form of humility is actually arrogance because the king of the universe is speaking. And man says, I'm not so sure. And that's, that's Genesis 3. That's where, that's where the fall happened. And that's where we live today. What we're saying is that God is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we're back to how you live this life. It's faith. It's trusting that God wants the best for you. So humble yourself under him. Say, God, you have your way. And then pay attention to what the Bible says. Consider the other person is more important than yourself. In Philippians 2.4. The mass of mankind, benighted by their ignorance of God's special revelation, ultimately delivered in Christ, who is the word become flesh. When we deal with these people who have no idea about what we're talking about, which is very common and will be more so as we proceed. We must not fall into the sinful temptation to become derisive or arrogant toward them. When we appraise their contradiction, that they're saying they're humble because they don't believe what God is saying. And you're arrogant because you humbly do believe what God is saying. <laughs> we mustn't become arrogant or derisive toward them because that's a trap and it misses the point because they are the mission. Man's arrogant humility and rebellion against God will move him to hate you. I'm preaching on Matthew 10 now, but they will hate you. Slaves not greater than his master. If they hated the master, they're going to hate you. They call them the son of uh, the, the, the Lord of the flies, Beelzebul. They call him the Lord of the flies. How much more will they, they accuse you of all kinds of immorality and wickedness? Today, people aren't. They're not traditional religious. They're secular, modern religious. The religion today is that there's no God. And so we just have to do the best we can. And what we have to do to make sure that that happens is get rid of all this Christian influence in the culture. And so man will hate you. Godless man will know you are wrong, that you must be silenced, that your stance for God's revelation will hurt those you disciple. But you and I must not derive our motivation from man's hatred. We don't get our ideas for how we respond or how we live or toward others by how they treat us. And that's the, that's the Christian miracle is that someone hates you and you don't hate them back. Someone accosts you and you love them and bless them and pray for those who persecute you. In the face of human ignorance parading about as understanding and virtue, we must 
respond from compassion, they are deceived. We must bless our enemies and pray for them that persecute us. We must recognize deception for what it is and its source. And so to the deceived, we must speak the truth in love. To say that, I had to write it down. Sometimes I have to write. The question I'm asking is, what would I have to be like to think like this all the time? I would have to be radically focused on God and trusting him constantly. Because the things that I can see and touch are no motivation for what we're reading here. There's nothing in the world to give me this kind of attitude. But knowing that God has a plan and a mission, and it involves suffering on mission with exaltation forever, knowing that that's the train of, of life that I'm in, and putting myself all the time and fully in God's hands and trusting him, that seems to be the attitude that undergirds everything Paul says. Paul has a little bit of an advantage on you. He's been to the third heaven. He's seen the Lord Jesus Christ in exaltation and glory, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's been taught by him face to face, and it was not a hallucination. And he doesn't wonder, I wonder if that was a dream. He knows because he was there and he's seen. And Peter has a one-up on you because he walked with the Lord Jesus, and he could tell him uh, in a crowd. He could pick him out. And especially when Jesus said, let your nets down on the other side of the boat. That's Jesus. When the, when the fish come in and the, the nets break and the boats start to sink. Peter knows Jesus personally, interactively, after the flesh. He knows him like you and I know each other. And so when Peter says, you, you, we, we worship the one we haven't seen, he's talking for the benefit of those he's writing to. We don't see him anymore as Peter's experience. He's headed back to what he had before, his face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of the stress we're under today. And so the question is, how are you going to organize your life? If the task is humility with the character of Jesus Christ, mediated by the word of God through the Holy Spirit, if that's what the task is, then I'm going to have to structure my life not around what this world offers or what the, the details of life that are all valuable and important. Not around my job, not around my marriage, not around my kids, not around all the things that are all the things. It's going to have to be around God's word because that'll give me the perspective to rightly deal in the power of God's spirit with all the things. And without that perspective, I won't have, I won't have any power. I won't have any right approach. I'll be spinning my wheels and wasting my time and paying the mortgage. What follows is exciting. In verses 12 through 18, this humility is expressed in obedience. So then my beloved Let's just pause there. You know, I used to think that we called people dearly beloved at weddings because I watched TV. Because that's when Reverend Alden said dearly beloved. Preacher on TV says dearly beloved at the wedding because it's in their liturgy or whatever the book of common prayer for the weddings or whatever. Dearly beloved. Paul thinks of those to whom he ministers as those he loves and he calls them the people I love. Are you comfortable with that language or are you, uh, uh, that's a little bit, a little bit uh, sappy. A little, a little too much on the affection there, Paul. No, he loves them. He tells them he loves them. I think there's a model there for us. So then my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence with fear and trembling, your salvation work out. That's the order in Greek. See the 
the verse ends in verse 12 with the verb, work it out. Because he's fronting with fear and trembling. He's fronting the character of your approach to the work. And then the work itself is your own salvation. For God is the one working. Not too many places God is called a uh, participle. Ha energon. The one working. This language is where we get the word energy and, you know, that, that idea. And it's pretty good translation, energy. We wouldn't call God energy because now we're in uh, George Lucas and the force and Eastern mysticism. Because God isn't energy. God is God, but he is omnipotent and he's the one who's working. And so God is a holy participle here. He's the one working, the worker. And so a participle is a great thing. It's a verb that is, functions often as an adjective. It has noun things and verb things all jammed together. It's kind of a supreme pizza uh, verbal form, okay? It's got gender and case and number and tense and voice. That's, that's a Doug Bill platypus, really, what a participle is. That's a Doug Bill participle. Now, um, <laughs> now, God is the one working, okay? is a verb that's been turned into an adjective that's being used as a substantive or a noun. That is so cool. Now, that doesn't make you a better Christian if you know that, but it, it does help you to understand your life and God's life in you if you know that the, the power is God personally working in you. And I don't think this means among you. Some translate this uh, in your presence or among, in, your, in your assembly, you know, God's power. I think this is God resident in you is working inside you. This is the indwelling of the spirit. God is the one working in you both to want. This may be my most important life verse for just getting to work fellow to want. I don't translate that to will. Because in the word will is the word volition, the idea of volition and a decision someone makes. We say will in English and we mean the person, we, we focus on the idea of the decision or the volition that someone has, the yes decision or the no decision. That's what we mean by will in our theological reasoning because of our great influences and in preaching and so forth. But that's what we think with the word will. I translate this to want because thelo if not always, then almost every time it's used is talking about what the person wants. It doesn't mean that God flips a switch and so you, he pushes your yes button, I will obey. It's prior to the yes button, it's why you do it. It's the desire, it's the motivation, it's the want it that you then choose. Now these are complicated related concepts, but I believe for our, for our day, the way we use English, this word to want, this, this word thileo, to, to will or to want, we really need to get hold of this. This is something that is lacking. It is so lacking in our people and our time. We're not hungry. We are, we are so ripe for some sort of warfare. The people are making skeleton dance parties in their yards all the time, energy, and money to celebrate death in everybody's yard. It looks like, every, I mean, I'm like, are these people spiritually dead? <laughs> Showcasing it on the front line. What is all this? 
I know it's a party. They're having fun. I, but I'm just saying all this, all this celebration of death. I think if you uh, deal with some uh, horrible, the horror of a military invasion and, and soldiers marching on your soil and they go through and rape and pillage and they kill the, the young men and do worse to the women and, and all that warfare and the horrors of life throughout world history involve, we're just in a bubble of peace. And what we do with it in our sinfulness is we get rotten. And that's our culture. We're just rotten. There's a huge wanting gap because we don't lack anything. We're never hungry. We don't even know what hungry is. You try to make the illustration of hungry for doing God's work. And somebody's like, that's really not touching me. What do you mean? It's, we got a huge motivation problem. And God is the one who's going to solve it. And the answer, I think, when you're struggling with, I don't really want to be in the word. I don't really want to do God's work. I really don't want to share Christ with this person that maybe this is an opportunity. It's time to ask him about this one. Father, you've said you're the one working in me both to want and to do what pleases you. So give me the capability of wanting and give me the capability of doing because all capability is yours. Now, what I've done by translating it want takes out this cop out that we, well, God didn't make me do it. So it's not my fault. There is volitional responsibility in the believer at every step of the way. Every time lately I've seen a command and we do it in this passage, I'll highlight it in red. Commands are in red because they're commands. And every message from this pulpit is about the grace of God and the commands of scripture are the grace of God to you. And it is not a contradiction of grace versus law or something to say we are under a, a wonderful easy yoke and a light burden from the Lord Jesus to do his work. So then my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence with fear and trembling, work out your salvation or go on working out your salvation present imperative. There's your red command. Do you feel responsible? to work out your salvation because Paul says it's a command for you to do it. Better figure out what that means. Goes back to verse four, considering each other more important than yourselves. Goes back to 121, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's to live out what's true in your experience, to live it out by, to live out your position in Christ in your experience. You're declared righteous. Are you walking in the light of God's righteousness? Are you enjoying fellowship with him? Are you abiding in Christ? This is to work out your salvation for God is the one working in you both to want to work for his good pleasure. The word work out caught our God's is related to this word. Our uh, to work Our to this is the same word group. And so you can't just say to do, I think it's work God and the inner the one working, sorry, the one working and the work. Nevertheless, this is the summary command of the apostle Paul. Humility for the believer is expressed in obedience according to the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul calls them to obey. Verse 14 says, do all things without complaining and disputing. I quit. I can't help but complain. I'm an American. I can't help it. It's just the way everyone is. It's the way everyone does. You know, people that don't complain get around people that do complain and then they start complaining. Don't we? It becomes the way that we communicate. And Paul is forging a new culture here. Everybody complains. Not us. 
This is why it's not, it's not a spiritual problem when Christians won't tell you. Lead with their problems. Hey, how are you doing? God is good. I mean, we don't know how we're going to pay the bills. <laughs> There's an illness we don't know how to cure, and, and we, we're having serious trouble with my in-laws, but God is good. I mean, I'm not leading with my problems. How are you doing? God is good to us, and we praise Him. We're not complaining. We're not complainers. We're not victims. Oh, I love to preach this in our culture today. Where victimhood is, you know the problem of the victim culture thing? It's just a power grab. It's just a way to get people who have power a little bit, everybody's got a little power, to aggregate it together in this victim class to give to the overlords who are going to put you on their plantation of, uh, of entitlement. Nevertheless, do all things without complaining and disputing is a very helpful encouragement. And I just want to point out a little bit of Greek flavor. That's ganguzmon. That's the word Paul uses for complaining. And I think it's onomatopoetic, meaning it's, the, it's a word that sounds like what it is. There's a gong, 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 gong kind of way of uh, just running your mouth. And I think he's saying, don't blah, blah and dispute. Um, and that's the word I think in Greek for complaining. I, I think that's right. I've said, I think like six times. But I'm absolutely certain that I am commanded not to complain ever. Not to argue. I'm not to cause strife. My mouth, your mouth, is a gospel communication device. And so it needs to be sacred in that sense. And so don't deny the gospel with your mouth. But rather do all things without complaining and disputing. So that, verse 15, we have a sanctified goal, so that you will be blameless and pure. My Bible uh, pr proposes, let's see, in verse 15, you will prove yourselves to be blameless and pure. Boy, I want to preach that word prove. I'm out to prove myself to be blameless and pure. That's the 2020 New American Standard. They keep doing this. This word here is what they're translating prove. And you Greek students know that that's genomai, and it's basically one of your key words for to be or to become. Amy and genomai are your two to be words for the most part. Which means that to get to prove yourselves out of that word is quite a paraphrase. But you have to explain it because the Greek, first year Greek translation of genomai is to become so that you become blameless and pure children of God by not complaining that makes you blameless and pure? Pretty much the idea. But what it will render is you into a state of being blameless and pure. And that's why I've translated you'll be. You will be walking in fellowship with God if you watch your mouth. Christians. Now this is finishing school, right? This is Philippians. They're mature enough to give from their poverty. They're giving beyond their means and God backfills them, but they, he'll supply all their needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. But they're giving in their great liberality to advance the gospel. And Paul is honoring them through this letter. So this is not to the Corinthians who the, the least of their troubles is their mouth. I mean, well, maybe not the least, but they got a lot of problems. Every chapter in first Corinthians is a correction of some sort. This is not that. This is you have certain expectations to be Christians consistently in the world. We need an attitude of humility as we care for one another. And now we need to be careful how we use our mouths because right now you're hurting or you're being oppressed or something that causes you, you might want to, to dispute or complain, but there's a big picture that you're actually working within. You need to keep the big picture in view. And so he says, 
He wants you to be blameless and pure children of God, unblemished in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine forth as lights in the world. And so your mouth can either exalt God and therefore 2.13 is happening. God's working in you both to want and to do. Or you can snuff out the light by complaining and disputing. You can ruin your, your witness. And it's, it's something to really think about. It's not something to agonize over about whether you're successful in your witness. Because God will make you successful. And well, I've failed and I've screwed up and there's stuff in the past. It's the past. You have to let it go. You have to say uh, there are no do-overs. And so stop trying to get one. There's no time machine. The, the, t the tape is ticking by. So don't agonize. Repent. Recover. Go back to what God has for you and move forward, I'm saying, in serving him. That's how we have to do. And so you might have found yourself complaining or disputing. You might complain and, and catch yourself. And it's already out there. Somebody's like, yeah, it's time for us all to complain. You've led someone in a great hymn of complaint. Well, you catch yourself. You say, I shouldn't have done that. Make whatever necessary adjustments you do and don't do that anymore. And the adjustments are to recognize it, self-assess in 1 Corinthians 11, and then confess our sins to God in 1 John chapter 1. But here's the goal, that you would walk in fellowship with God. You'd be blameless and pure children of God, unblemished despite being in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, what that means is that I cannot look left and I cannot look right in the generation in which I live to find out how to live. Well, everybody else complains. That's right. Everybody else is fornicating. That's right. Everybody else is everybody else is everybody else is right. Everybody else is, uh, is uh, staring at their device. Everyone else is on TikTok. Everybody else is doing whatever everyone else is doing. And for the most part, it's a crooked and perverse generation. And there you are in the middle of it, not caring what everyone else is doing. And I don't mean you don't know. I mean, you're not taken in. I mean, you're not part of that. That's not, that's a culture to which I can minister, but to which I truly don't belong because my citizenship is in heaven because I have a kingdom to which I'm advancing and I have a role in that kingdom in Christ's coming administration. And that's what I'm living toward. It's a totally different way of life. How do you shine? Well, in verse 16, you, uh, Epecho, you hold fast the word of life toward the goal of the boast for me on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain nor did I labor in vain. What? Verse 16. Holding firmly the word of life so that on the day of Christ I can take pride because I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I would translate kakema uh, to boast, unto the boast. And it's a very difficult sentence to bring into English in any kind of one word for one word translation, because of how it says, this is my best toward the goal. That's ace of the boast. That's Kakema for me. That's Emoy on the day of Christ. What Paul is saying is that there is an effect of your being unblemished and spotless in this perverted and crooked generation. There is an effect for me at the judgment seat of Christ. The, the, the day of Christ is the judgment seat of Christ at the conclusion, at the evaluation. And so what we do now, when we bring the judgment seat of Christ into our thinking, we're answering the question, what is God going to do with me? He's going to judge me for my works. We know that that's second Corinthians five. And he talks about it here. It's actually in every Pauline epistle. He talks about this day of Christ and the being ready for it and the judgment seat of Christ. That's not the great white throne judgment. It's not the judgment of the unbeliever. It's you. It's what Paul is talking about. He is preparing for here. Now, here's the thing. 
Your evaluation of your life may be one way after the flesh, but the Lord's evaluation of it is going to be different than what your flesh suggests. And you have to pick one. And what you want to do is serve God's evaluation because, well, I, I, am I making enough money? Am I doing the right, you know, am I in the kind of job I want to do? Am I got the right kind of friends? You know, all these questions that we have about the details of life. The, the real issue is what is Jesus Christ going to do at the end? And it clarifies everything. It's that great theological question. What is God going to do with me? And Paul is seeing their success as a cause for his boasting at this judgment seat of Christ. He gets an A, a paper because they were successful. There's a connection. There's a teamwork thing going on here and the outcome at the judgment seat of Christ. And it's not, how did your marriage go? There's nothing in the Bible about the judgment seat of Christ and marriage. People want to have a good marriage, but they, they don't often understand that means being the, the husband you're supposed to be men and the wife you're supposed to be women, and then that makes a good marriage. But they're trying to, to fix the, the, the machine. Well, the machine only works if everybody runs you know, properly, if the, if the parts work properly. Well, I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about fixing the machine. Well, Let's replace the parts. I mean, <laughs> you can't fix this machine unless the parts run right. And so th that's, not, that's not a biblical thing of the judgment seat of Christ and marriage, but the relationship between believers in ministry, Paul talks about all the time. That at the, at the appearing of Christ, at the judgment seat of Christ, that I'll have a boast because of your success. And that's why he calls them his joy and his crown at the coming of our Lord. And so... You can't do this Christian thing. You cannot live the Christian life without Christians, without other believers. It doesn't exist. Um, but uh, at the same time, it isn't Christians for their own sake. It's Christians for God's sake. It's how we deal with one another for our worship of God. Now, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy together with all of you. Now, this is a hard thing to translate here. It's really neat. But uh, Paul, remember, this is the epistle of Paul and Chains rejoicing. Cairo. You see this word? C-H-A-I-R-O, Cairo. It means to rejoice. I rejoice. And then he says it again. Just kind of blank that out. You say C-H-A-I-R-O. It's the same word. But he added a little thing in the front. Sub Cairo. It means to rejoice together. It's the word. It's the preposition you throw in front to, for a with. It's a withative. Uh, the withative preposition soon. And it means to, 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 to rejoice together. So if I was going to really bring this forward in English as a, as, with the same punch as the Greek, I would say, I rejoice and I, will, I rejoice together with you. Um, but that doesn't really work. And so in English, because they can do this, they can throw words together and have a new word. So we have to bring out the difference. And so your English translations will say, I'm glad for the first one. And I, re I rejoice together with you or something like that. I say, I rejoice and I share my joy. That's the new American standard uh, decision. I think they're, that's a good choice. But the point is that I am rejoicing. Why? Because I'm dying in the ministry for your benefit. I rejoice at that. That's what he says when he's, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, that's his death. And if I die for your advance, I rejoice. And I rejoice together with you. Why? Because you'll advance, because you'll be what you're supposed to be because of my sacrifice, because God used me that way. And so your rejoicing and your success and advance and, and mission uh, effectiveness is something I can rejoice in too. And I'll share with you. And it'll be eternal, by the way, that we had this relationship. And Paul did certainly have a great fellowship with the Philippians in the gospel. 
And in the same way also, you rejoice and share your joy together with me. Uh Uh-oh. I did not label this correctly. You're going to have to forgive me for just a second. What did I not do? Does anybody know? Anybody? Bueller? Oh, there we go. They're imperatives. Now, this is my favorite thing to do to, to Americans, uh, as being one, is to say that you can command your feelings. Paul can command feelings because it says rejoice. This is the letter of the imperative Cairo, the imperative rejoicing everywhere. It's awesome. Suck it up, buttercup, and rejoice. That's kind of that attitude. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. I'm suffering. Yeah, Paul's in chains. Uh. But, but, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to have the, the full you know, career that I want. Paul was, was a, a rising star in the rabbinate. He was going to be the next Gamaliel. And he didn't, he didn't have any of that. I mean, he, was, he was in line to get multiple PhDs and honorary doctorates and be the high great rabbi. None of it. He's the scum of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. This is a command, which means that, God, you're going to have to bring this about. How in the world can I fulfill this command? Well, when you are given a command, it's always a choice for you to say yes or no to the command. When you're given a command by God's enemy or by your flesh, you have this sense of urgency to to do something you shouldn't do. You actually have a responsibility to say no to it. And the reason you are required to say no to these uh, sinful commands is because God doesn't want you to do them. And you're supposed to walk in the light as God is in the light and enjoy his righteousness experientially and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's why. Doesn't change the, the compelling nature of the command. I feel like obeying that bad idea. But there's a problem of authority. See, the power of sin has been broken. You don't have to obey the old master. You're supposed to say no to the flesh and yes to God. You're living as a living holy sacrifice to God. And so you, you, you say no to that command. And here's the thing. Satan has no authority over you. Your flesh has no authority over you. The world has no authority. So when a command is issued by someone without authority, you do what we do. We say, respectfully, no. But when someone with the right authority says it, and how did he get it? Well, God made you. He knows what you're capable of. He is orchestrating your circumstances, directing you on a path of service to him with corrections along the way and rewards in the moment for obedience. He does. He blesses us as we go. And he knows exactly what you need. And one of the things you and I need is to trust him and read this and then choose to rejoice. Why? Well, in context, because they have their savior in context, because he gave himself for them in context, because uh, he is exalted and they are in him. They are in Christ and sharing his glory and his destiny. And in context, because there's a mission and they're successful on it. And in context, because Paul is being successful now, further equipping them for the mission. And even if Paul has to die in their service, that's an exaltation of Christ through Paul, which is a great cause for rejoicing. And they should rejoice too in that fact. And so 
Here's what happens with joy. I'm absolutely certain of this. Read it in Paul. Read the, the, the concordance search is a great thing to do. Read the concordance and see how the word joy works. Joy is a feeling. Pardon the expression, a feeling uh, that's not in the body necessarily. I don't mean it's, I don't mean it's like um, biological is what I'm trying to say. I don't mean it's biological. Everything you do is in your body, but I'm saying it's not a biological thing. It can be masked or, or um, counterfeited with dopamine release through various pharmaceuticals and things. But, but that's not what we're talking about. I'm just saying joy is, is what the world calls emotion, what the old Puritans call affections. It's a feeling. Get, around, get over that. It's what C.S. Lewis is after when he says that the world is producing men without chests in his introduction to... Um, the abolition of man. It's the idea of no heart, no grit, no gut. That, that language is all through the Bible. And um, especially language of gut is affections, it's feelings. Joy is one of these. It really is. I've seen the attempt to make joy be um, a thought. But it, it's not. It's not a thought. It's the response of your soul to thought. It's the response. Joy is yippee. Joy is uh, the Toyota commercials where they always jumped up in the air and then they froze the screen back in the 80s, remember? I forget what they said, but it was a visual thing. They would jump up in excitement over having a Japanese car. That later on, well, they were right, 400,000 miles later on that same car. <laughs> okay. Joy is the fruit of the spirit. And this is the problem people have. They say, well, if, if joy is an emotion, then love, no, it is not an emotion. Love has affections that go with it, but it is not primarily an emotion. It's a duty. You're like, well, joy is being commanded here. Love is self, selfless disregard for self and concern for the other. That's love. That's agape love. There are feelings that go with it. All these things are complicated, okay? Let me, let me break down a little bit of the complexity between feeling and thought and joy. It's very easy to illustrate. When I was in second grade, the birthday of my second grade, I'm a September kid, so my birthday comes along right after about a month of school. So you have long enough to make friends, and it isn't long enough where you've lost your friends. So right at birthday time, you know, you can have a pretty good party, right? My dad cut, he, he lowered the, the lawn, he cut the grass, the normal height, and then he, he lowered the lawnmower two notches and he cut a baseball diamond, just the, the, the track in the backyard on a slope, which was really fun. But anyway, um, and, he, and we had a, a sleepover party at my house. This is not done. We didn't do this. We didn't have multiple people over. We had a, a crazy, my dad had this old canvas tent. I never saw it. He got it out and built it for this sleepover party with five of my dearest baseball friends. And we played baseball in the backyard and uh, half the kids were on my, my little league team. And, uh, and we slept in the tent and there was cake and there were presents and it was better than I could have ever thought. But I, I wanna say that the lead up to it was better than the actual event. The anticipation, the, hey, your birthday's coming up. What do you want to do? I want to have some friends over. 
Okay, we can do that. You want to do the tent in the backyard? <gasps> are, you, are you kidding? No, I'm second grade. For me, this is just off the chain. I'm, I'm going to turn, let's see, seventh, second grade. Um, I think I'm turning 10, 11. Anyway, um, <laughs> no, uh, you add six because I turned six in kindergarten. So I'm going to be eight. I mean, there's, there's GoBots. Uh, there, there's Constructs presence there's it's just amazing and i just can't believe my good fortune of having these people that i love and i i didn't know this but i'm very people oriented so to me this is just unbelievable right so we're having this incredible uh lead up to this thing and the minute she tells me this is what we're going to do for your birthday i am rejoicing now why am i having the thing yet no it's an anticipation it's coming that's kind of how christian joy works a lot of times the the big party's coming right Right now we're working for, toward the weekend, but the weekend's coming. What, what, what is this joy? It is the anticipation, but it's also the idea. It's also the commitment. We're doing this. Are they really doing this? Yeah, dad just got the, the tent down out of the attic. We don't have basements. So he gets the tent down out of the attic. So seems like this is really going to happen. And then he starts putting the tent pegs in the ground on a Thursday. And I'm like, this must be a long tent project or something. There's a lot going on with this tent. But, but it, was, it was as the thing came to fruition, I started seeing the, the thoughts that were involved come to, come to pass. And because of this principle in my mind that we're going to have this party, because there's a promise, because there's a, the pro, the, what the promise involves. Think about, just overanalyze it with me. I am, I'm off, I'm, I'm, I'm off the hook, excited. That's joy. And it's the little kid birthday party. It's, it's, there's, there's different levels of joy. If you say ice cream in the presence of a small child, it's joy. And as Jim Gaffigan says, it's a commitment. You even say the word ice cream and the child says, yes, I'll have it now. And you say, well, I wasn't going to get you ice cream. She says, chocolate. I, we were just saying the word, I'll have it now. You know, you try to explain, but the, the idea of the word ice cream in a child that elicits joy because of what it is, you know, it's the greatest thing, you know, on earth after the gospel and the Bible and the spiritual things, then ice cream. And the idea of that we're having ice cream, there's a little joy. As you get older, that joy probably diminishes, but I'm just, maybe not, <laughs> but that's what joy is. It's not silly. It, it, we can be silly with it, but joy is the. Um, the happiness, if you will, or the excitement or the bliss or the good feeling that you have about true things that you come to believe. Sorrow works this way. Someone dies on the battlefield of World War II, a family member dies, a kid or a brother, and you don't know. You're having a party, same birthday party, don't know, everything's fine, you're having a party, person's been dead for a week or whatever. And finally the notification gets rerouted and get, lands at your house. And that truth, that fact, that reality that you come to know, that information, that thought now changes everything because we were having a party, but then the notification came and now I know what's been true for a week. Now the truth is the truth that happened a week ago, but when it becomes something that I know the, the proposition, now I'm sorrow. Now I'm and obviously the feelings. And so when this is what we're talking about, this is Christian joy and, and sorrow. These are feelings and 
they can be command. This one can be commanded. We're, we're commanded to sorrow when others sorrow in Romans 12. Weep when others weep. You have to enter into their situation to do that without being hypocritical. But this is what the Bible does, is it tells you what you are and what you're capable of. And we tend to think that we can rejoice if we feel like it. And we're looking for that feeling. And Paul says, I just told you enough for you to rejoice about. So you need to choose that. And this is the great way to kind of end where we began. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Because even if I die for the gospel, in verse 17, I rejoice. And I rejoice together with you that it was to your benefit. And you better rejoice with me about what life is for. This is all a footnote to for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. What would it take for us to be this kind of people? It would take a radical attention to the word of God. It would take, therefore, a constant faith in God as he's revealed himself. And that faith doesn't stop with uh, the amen. That faith continues in the carrying through what he said and doing, not just hearing, but doing what he said. Even if you should be called upon by the Lord to die for the gospel. Now, I don't feel this way. I want, I want you to understand. I think this. But even if you and I should be called upon to die for the gospel's sake, that should be a cause for our rejoicing. And for me and you to be that way, we're going to have to have our attention on God more than on ourselves or on people or on the culture or on the election or all the distractions. These things are all important things. But let's lay hold of our first love. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we thank you, Father, for the ministry of the gospel and the way the Apostle Paul has constrained us and in, in the writing to the Philippians, we are under obligation to rejoice in the gospel ministry wherever it takes us because of its, gra its, its gravity, its glory, its magnitude. We don't feel this way, Father. Well, we don't start out feeling this way. But as your word mediates your truth to us, as your spirit uses this word to conform us in our thinking to your thoughts, we see it. We, we see the way to rejoice even in suffering. Father, we so easily lose this thought through personal sin, through just latent distraction. We don't uh, fully grasp or choose what you've said and then we fall short. But Father, you're, you're the one working in us both to want to do what pleases you. And I pray that you'll do that work in us here where we'll learn to rejoice in the ministry of the gospel. Not, not just in the sacrifice part, the hard part. Let us rejoice in the success part. We want to see gospel success in these dear people around us who are deceived by your enemy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.